Well, good morning. Lovely to be here. Uh, it actually wasn't my birthday yesterday. It was, my birthday was last Thursday, but it's still not too late to give gifts, by the way. <laughs> so it's okay. Don't feel guilty. I'm happy to receive them during the remainder of the week. We should pray. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, and we will just ask that you might guide us through it this morning. Amen. Well, Haggai, I guess uh, a lot of people don't spend a lot of time reading through the Minor Prophets, and you know it's actually really hard. It's on page 956 in my Bible. Um, if you have the same edition, you might be able to find that in yours as well. But it's, all those little books at the back of the Bible, the back of the Old Testament, are always a bit difficult to find, is it? especially when they've only got a chapter or two. But this is what we're going to launch into today, and it's, uh, it's really quite fascinating. It has much to say to us. And it's important when we look at some of these uh, little books, uh, particularly those that are of prophetic nature and they're there in the Old Testament, that we kind of get a bit of a context. And whether you like history or not, uh, too bad, you've got to get a little bit, just a little bit, just to give us a context. And I'm quite conscious of the fact that you know, names and numbers don't necessarily mean much to a lot of folks. They're just names and numbers. Uh, but without, with the, without a context, uh, a historical context, we find that the book itself doesn't have uh, quite the depth of meaning that it might have if we understood just a little bit of the context itself. So I'm just going to give you like a literally a two-minute uh, rundown on sort of the, the historical situation. So first of all, you might be aware of you know, other books of the Bible like Daniel and so on, and they're set in the context of the Babylonian Empire initially, then later the P- uh, Medo-Persian Empire. But Babylon itself conquered Judah finally in 586 BC. There have been a couple of other invasions, 605, 597 and so on, but 586, they conquered uh, the, uh, the city or, or the, the southern kingdom of Judah and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple that was in Jerusalem. Now, at a spiritual level, the conquest itself was not just a historical event, but rather it was something, it was something more than that. It had greater depth to it, greater significance. It was really God working to punish his people for their disobedience and for their idolatry. Well, time goes by, people are, uh, the city's conquered, people are sent into exile, they have to live in other places that are not their homes, and many people are sent to Babylon itself. In 539, Cyrus II, or Cyrus the Great, conquered the Babylonians, and he took Babylon, the city. And then in 538, just a year later, he issued a decree, and the decree simply said that those who were of the house of Israel, who'd been exiled, who who were captives in Babylon, could go home again. So there was a decree from the king that they could go home. It's probable that in historical terms that what was um, happening is that Cyrus was looking to have a kind of a, a friendly face on his western border. But whatever the reason, they were allowed to go back. And they were given the stuff that was, uh, uh, I suppose, taken from the temple, the temple goods, the temple treasures, and to go back. And they were allowed to rebuild the temple. Now, the story of that, uh, if you want to go into some of the detail, is found in Ezra. You can go from Ezra chapters 1 to 6, and you get a bit of a a fleshing out of the detail of this part of the story. So the temple itself was um, began to be rebuilt, and there was a great enthusiasm about that. And as you probably know, people who get enthusiastic about stuff at first sometimes lose enthusiasm if there's a bit of opposition. And there was. 
And there was all sorts of toing and froing, and there was uh, threats made, and the people of Israel basically just stopped. They got part way and they just stopped. And they stopped for quite a long time. In fact, uh, if you read Ezra 4, uh, 5, well, Ezra 4, 4 and 5, we find this explanation for the stoppage. It says that the people of the land uh, discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build, bribed counsellors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of uh, Darius, king of Persia. Now, Cyrus died in 530. He was succeeded by his son, Cambyses, who ruled from 530 to 522. And then he was succeeded by Darius, who went from 522 to 580, uh, 486. And here's where Haggai comes in. Haggai's prophetic utterances take place over a period of just a few months. We've actually got, for Haggai, exact dates of when he spoke. So he spoke in the second year of King Darius. The second year of King Darius is 520 BC. His first oracle was actually given on the 29th of August and his final oracle on the 18th of December in our dates. We find it says in Haggai uh, chapter 1 verse 1, In the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So here we have the historical context. Are we still with us? That wasn't so bad, was it? Okay. So people have gone home, they're sitting around, they're not doing nothing. Except. Now, when we read the story of the failure to complete the temple, we get a couple of different versions. And we get a couple of different kind of reasons. So the reason the temple hadn't been completed according to the Israelites themselves is that, and this is in verse 2, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Whatever that means. Sounds more like an excuse than a reason. See, the returning exiles had been intimidated by opponents, and those opponents had gone so far as to actually get royal approval for opposing the building of the temple, the rebuilding, even though royal approval had originally been given. But we find that in um, verses 3 and 4, God gives another reason. He says, says the word of the Lord came to, by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paddled houses while this house lies in ruins? So the people had chosen to build and beautify their own homes rather than attend to the completion of the house of the Lord. Now, we have to realise that this is really just this is really a lot more than just a bad choice of building projects. It wasn't like, build my house, build a temple, oh no, I'll build my house. Once that's done, I'll make go back to the temple. There's much, much more to it than that. It goes much deeper. See, for the Israelites, the temple represented the presence of God. It was the centre of their religious practice. It was there that the daily sacrifices were made. It was there that their special festivals were held, like Passover and so on. In the temple was the Holy of Holies, you know, that special place that the priests only entered on the Day of Atonement, where was, there was the Mercy Seat and the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments. You see, when you've got no temple in that time, no temple means no sacrifices. There's no acts of atonement, no ritual acts of atonement. There's no active engagement with or acknowledgement of the presence of God among his people. 
See, to give the building of the temple a lower priority than the building of nice homes for themselves is to say that they saw themselves and their comfort as more important than God. See, so it spoke volumes about their relationship with God. It spoke volumes about their failure to trust. Sure, there was opposition. But in spite of the opposition, God's really saying to them, you should have done it anyway. You should have done it anyway. Verses 7 and 8, God issues an instruction. He says, consider your ways. He says that, you know, that term a few times in the passage. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood and build the house. Now this is going to be as fancy as the, as the previous temple that Solomon made. They got their timber from Lebanon where, um, yeah, where they got the best of timber in the uh, ancient Near East. He says, go up to the hills. So nearby, grab what wood you can. Build the house. Why? That I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified says the Lord. So here's the rub. His pleasure is more important than their pleasure. His glory is more important than their glory. And they've got to come to recognise that reality. The first third of chapter 2 fleshes the whole thing out further. God is calling his people back to covenant obedience. And even in doing that, he's not calling them to simply obey the precepts of the law because they feel guilty about it. It's not just some compulsion, do this or else. God is wanting something much, much deeper than that. He's wanting a response of the heart. He's wanting genuine faithfulness that issues from a profound desire to glorify and honour God as their first priority. Ezekiel, who wrote just a few years before Haggai, makes the point even more eloquently. He says in verse, oh, sorry, chapter 36 and verse 23. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people. I will be your God. Isn't it fascinating? I will, I will, I will, says God. It's not so much about what the, uh, the Israelites will do. He's commanding them to do stuff. They haven't done it. How will it happen? I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. Isn't that true of us? How is it that we turn to God? How is it that we obey God? How is it that we have the capacity to do the will of God? Because God does it. It's God's work in us. Haggai reminds the returned exiles that the drought and the crop failure and so on have been that they'd experienced had been the consequences promised in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. They had broken the covenant. These were the consequences. But the Israelites themselves didn't seem to recognise these consequences for what they were. They ignored the obvious. They took no notice of the prompts. They chose not to shift their priorities from pleasing self to glorifying God. And again, Ezekiel takes it further. He says this in, um, he goes, uh, in also in chapter 36, And I will deliver you from your uncleanness. I will summon the grain, make it abundant, lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. 
that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. You will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. God speaks in terms of grace. You haven't done it, but I will do it. My name's been profaned. You haven't done anything about that. I will do it. But I'll do it still through you. What an incredible thing. They've got to work through a sinful and disobedient people to achieve his purposes. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. See, the Israelites' Israelites' failure to complete the temple was really an act of faithlessness. It was a failure to trust God. Jesus himself says something about this kind of thing in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon of the Mount. He tells his listeners not to be anxious about the basic necessities of life. God knows you need that stuff. He goes, he says, for the Gentiles seek after these things, he says. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. (laughs) See, we in this day and age as Christians have the same challenge that Haggai put before the Israelites. It's a challenge of priorities. It's a challenge of trust. We could sit here and ask ourselves, or perhaps spend more time contemplating, to what we give our time, to what we give our material resources, to what we give our talents and gifts, our hearts, our passions. There are plenty of temptations and there's plenty of distractions for us in this world today. Uh, I was listening to Radio National the other day, because apparently, well, as far as I'm aware, there's no other station. Um, uh, But I was listening to Radio National, and Nick Earle, who's a writer of teenage novels, was speaking. Um, I don't think he's the greatest novelist, but that's a different issue. Uh, But he's talking about a thing that was called Facebook envy. Some of us might suffer from that. Uh, You know, he talked about how we sometimes see posts of other people on Facebook and assume that the posts they place and the photos they put up are actually indicative of their reality. You know, the nice house, the great job, the best holiday ever in the history of the universe, the most loving, obedient, talented children dressed up in their school uniforms, willingly getting photos taken of themselves before they head off. Um, that you know, They get praised for getting a you know, sort of certificate in good behaviour or papier-mâché, and apparently that's the best thing ever. Um, stuff like that. And we think, gosh... My kids aren't quite as good as that. My home's not quite as good as that. My holiday wasn't as exciting as that. And so on and so forth. The fact is that the way things appear really aren't the way things are. We know that. But we still sometimes have this welling up in us, this thing, a desire, a, a covetousness. And then we spend our time trying to pursue it or give our minds to it as though it's actually worth pursuing or bothering with. See, in a consumer-driven society, we're constantly tempted to hanker after something that someone else has or to lead the kind of life someone else leads and so on and so forth. Now, we all know those kinds of things. We all know that there are plenty of temptations out there, but the message of Haggai is get your priorities right. Know in whom you place your trust. Are you going to build a panelled house or are you going to build the temple of the Lord? Ephesians 5.15 says, Look carefully how then you walk, not as unwise but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Like the people of, of Haggai's time, 
we probably need to realign our priorities. God wants our hearts, our love, our faithfulness, our obedience. Other people should know that we're Christ's disciples because we love one another and because we love God. We're called to seek his kingdom first, that we might give him honour and glory. Those are the kinds of things that should motivate us. That should be our number one priority. The second point, that was the first one by the way, you probably may have guessed that. The history bit was just a preamble, doesn't count as a point. So it didn't actually even count in the time. (laughs) Second point, shorter. Sovereignty. God is in charge. And some really fascinating stuff that God indicates through Haggai about his control of things. Haggai 1.14, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, the sixth month, the second year of Darius, the king. But then we read in Ezra chapter 6, verse 13, Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bazanai, and their associates did all with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. The elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet, Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel, and notice this, and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of, king, of Darius the king. Now, as you get the two things that are happening here, we've got God's spirit, God's spirit working in the hearts and minds of the leaders of Israel and in the remnant. It's a deeply personal thing here. God's spirit prompts. God's spirit works in. And yet God's spirit is also working in history, in the big sweep of history. The decrees of um, Cyrus, of Darius, and later Artaxerxes all come together at the opportune time that this work might be done. See, God in his sovereignty uh, superintends over all things, the huge sweep of history and our individual lives. He's as interested in much as much in us, ordinary little people, as he is in the broad sweep of all that will happen on the earth. And so this is how God works. He stirs up the spirits of the leaders and of the remnant and so on. He works through the decrees of kings, of empires. And we see there God's sovereignty in action as he superintends those you know, great sweeps, those individual individual things. And the incredible thing about it is that while God's sovereign, uh, sovereignty concerns the big and the small, it also works in a way that somehow his purposes are achieved without turning people into robots, without turning us into puppets. Our decision-making is still real. We still are agents of our own um, desires. We can still do according to our will. And yet God has all of that in control. How mind-blowing is that idea? Just think for a moment of your own conversion experience. What are the circumstances surrounding it? What people came into your lives at that point? What events were occurring in your life? And then what was going on the inside? What was prompting? In what way was God's spirit working? The two things worked together. Those external circumstances, if you like, and the inner promptings of the, of the Spirit of God. 
and they come together in such a way as to bring about the purpose God intends. Consequence of that is we're here today. We love Jesus. We know him. Our sins are forgiven. Why? Because God is at work exercising his sovereign will for our benefit. Incredible thing. It's a marvellous thing. We see that sort of thing happening in the Bible regularly. Remember Joseph's story who said when his brothers challenged him about it, he said, you did something that was evil, but God meant it for good. And he did. Even more poignantly in the, uh, in the uh, crucifixion of Jesus in Acts chapter 2, Peter speaks, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Got that one? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, you crucified and killed. Two things work together. God raised him, and he goes on, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. What an amazing God we serve. He's a God who is able, in his infinite and unfathomable wisdom and power, to so control history and the lives of individuals that his purposes are achieved, yet without compromising human responsibility or the free exercise of our wills. We're still responsible for what we do. The Israelites are still responsible for what we do, for what they did. Incredible. Second point. See, it was fairly quick. Hopefully you'll take that one home with you. You can chat about that over coffee, perhaps. How it is those things work together. Final point. God often works counterintuitively. Sometimes the external seems to suggest that, that things just aren't going to happen. It's kind of impossible. In Haggai 2 verse 1, in the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So Haggai invites those who were around when uh, Solomon's temple was still standing to compare this partially completed, partially ruined temple with the incredible splendour of Solomon's temple. It's chalk and cheese. There's no comparison. The new temple is by far the inferior structure, and even when it's complete, it will still be so. It wasn't until the time of Herod that you, you know, they got all the um, renovations done. Let's see the next part of uh, Haggai's message. God tells the leaders and the people that despite appearances, and despite the fact this is an, you know, what looks like an inadequate, inferior structure, he says, you should be strong, for I am with you. His message reminds me of the way God had acted among them in the past, in the Exodus, the conquest of Canaan. And just like the past, my spirit remains in your midst. You see, what does the temple represent? The temple represents the presence of God. What is God saying? Guess what? I'm present anyway. I am with you. He goes on, I will shake the nations. He's given this incredible note of hope. I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. 
So despite the, the, the circumstances they found themselves in, despite appearances, if you like, the people have every reason to remain strong, to maintain their trust in God. After all, he's proven his might in the past. He's fulfilled his covenant promises and his spirit remains with them in the present. And on this basis, he's promised, he has promised a whole lot of stuff in the future that is wonderful, that is glorious. You know, the latter glory shall be greater than the former. And all of that's grounded in the fact that the temple is really a material representation of a spiritual reality. God's presence with his people. Leviticus tells us something of that in, in chapter 26, verse 11. He says, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you, be your God. You shall be my people. And surely Haggai is really anticipating what's going on in Revelation 21, verse 1. That I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So the message, message I think is clear. Don't be swayed by externals. God has everything in control. We're called to trust in God even when it seems counterintuitive, even if it seems just for the moment, a little irrational. Why? Because God does, in fact, have everything in control. His purposes cannot be thwarted. The latter glory of his house shall be greater than the former. And as we look around the world today, it's really easy to be discouraged, is it not? But the message of Haggai to trust in the sovereign and compassionate power of God continues to be real for us. He called, Haggai called his people... Through God, well, God called his people through Haggai. He says, work for I am with you. He said, don't stop just because stuff looks bad. Don't stop. Work for I am with you. You know, in Australia, we see a growth in anti-Christian forces attempting to influence government policy and undermine Christian values and things like same-sex marriage and, and safe schools program, that kind of thing. In the Middle East, we find extremist Islam causing enormous hardship for Christians. Christians are being intentionally targeted, subjected to severe persecution. As we know, people have been displaced, they've been incarcerated, they've been tortured, they've been martyred. Yet according to sources such as Open Doors and other Christian organisations working in the region, the fastest rate of conversion to Christian faith in the world at the moment is happening in Iran and Afghanistan. What about China? No one's quite sure how many Christians there are in China. Numbers vary, but they're all in the tens of millions an article I read just the other day suggested that within a few years, a number of Christians in China will exceed the number of Christians in the US. Maybe it already does. It's an incredible thing. I'd like to finish with just a story. A story about Ernest Gordon. Some of you might remember the story of Ernest Gordon. Um, he was uh, uh, captured in the fall of Singapore in, in um, 1942. Spent uh, three years in a prison camp in Thai Burma Railway, became a, a POW. Um, and when he became a POW, he was an agnostic. Uh, but in the camp, he found Christ. And uh, just a couple of things he says. He says, We had no church, no chaplains, no services. If there were men who kept faith alive in their hearts, they gave no sign. 
That was not surprising. At Changi, those were not in Singapore still. Many had turned to religion as a crutch, but the crutch had not supported them, so they'd thrown it away. Many had prayed, but only for themselves. Nothing happened. They'd sought personal miracles from the Bible. None had come. They'd appealed to God as an expedient, but God apparently had refused to be treated as one. We had long since resigned ourselves to being derelicts. We were the forsaken men, forsaken by our, fam- by our families, by our friends, by our government. Now even God had left us. Hate for some was the only motiv- motivation for living. In time, even hate died, giving way to numb, black despair. Ernest Gordon himself became gravely ill. He was taken to what was called the death hut, where all those who had no hope of survival were about to die. The two Christians came and helped him. They got him medicine, they cleaned his wounds, they sat with him, they got him food. Uh, off all of that at much personal cost. What Ernest Gordon saw was the love of Christ in action, and that for him was a turning point, and he committed his life to Christ. Others in the camp also found Christ in the midst of death and disease and horror. In his book he wrote, Death was still with us, but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and those that made for death. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness and pride were all anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity and creative faith, on the other hand, were the essence of life, turning mere existence into living in its truest sense. These were the gifts of God to men. True, there was hatred, there was also love. There was death, there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to live the divine life in fellowship. Ernest Gordon um, took on a kind of a camp chaplain role. Um, he'd had a university education and so had some others, and they started a kind of a, a, a camp university and taught people stuff, which um, really raised the spirits. Things were practical things, but also through to things like philosophy and theology and Bible. He writes in his book a, a conclusion of one of the discussions that they had. He says, and part of this is, he says, uh, True, Jesus had been strung up on a cross and tormented with the hell of pain, but he had not broken. The weight of law and of prejudice had borne down on him but failed to crush him. He had remained free and alive as the resurrection affirmed. What he was, what he did, what he said, all made sense for us. We understood that the love expressed so supremely in Jesus was God's love, the same love we were experiencing for ourselves, the love that is passionate kindness, other-centred rather than self-centred, greater than all the laws of men. It was the love that inspired St Paul once he had felt its power to write, love suffereth long and is kind. The doctrines we worked out were meaningful to us. We approached God through Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, the incarnate word, Such an approach seemed logical, for that was the way he had come to us. He had taken flesh, walked in the midst of men, declared himself by his actions to be full of grace and truth. We arrived at our understanding of God's way, not one by one, but together. In the fellowship of freedom and love, we found truth, and with truth, a wonderful sense of unity, of harmony, of peace. So in the midst of the privations and horror of a camp on the Thai Burma Railway, where over 80,000 people died... Ernest Gordon and others found faith. They found life. They found a reason to trust God. Isn't that counterintuitive? The external said everything against it. And yet, in the midst of it, they found Christ. Haggai has much to say to us today. 
His words are not only relevant to a remnant group of refugees returning from their homeland 20, or 20, to their homeland 2,500 years ago. God is still calling his people to seek his kingdom first, to put him ahead of all else. He's still demonstrating that he is at work in the world and that his sovereign plan of redemption is being worked out in the great movements of history and in the lives of individuals and in the most unexpected and unlikely places. He is still encouraging us to be strong, to trust him, to work, not be discouraged by external circumstances, for he is with us. And he works in ways that we might consider to be counterintuitive, unexpected. He remains Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that God has done. Father, we thank you for all that you do in the world. We thank you for what you have done in our own lives. We pray that we might be challenged to realign our priorities if they've uh, suffered from a a misalignment. That we might see that your honour, your glory is more important than our own. That we might be part of building up the the body of Christ, the temple of God, and not our own panelled houses. Father, help us to continue to work even when things seem difficult and tough even when the externals cry out against us. Father, we would pray that we might uh, honour you, all that we do and all that we say in our relationship, that we might love you and love our neighbour. Father, we just ask that you might continue to speak to us through the words that you gave to Haggai at that point, that you might show us how they're relevant for us, even today. This we ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.